Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hey, everybody. Sean King here. For the month of July, I'm on sabbatical. So we're rerunning some of our favorite episodes of The Breakdown and other North Star podcasts. I hope you enjoy them, and I'll see you again in August with brand new content. Hello, everybody. Welcome to... Another episode of Woke at Work with your favorite Black girl Latina duo. <laughs> there you go. That's right. It's the new Monica. Yeah, Ray and Blanca, and our special guest, Miss Shaniqua Moore. Who I'm very, very excited um, to speak with. Shaniqua has had me as a guest on a couple of her programs several times. And now I get to switch things up and interview her for a change. So welcome, Janika. Thank you so much, Ray. Thank you. (laughs) Yes. Um, So I'm going to tell you all a little bit about Janika, just as I always do, so that you all can um, know the powerful woman that you are listening to or watching now because we're on video. Funny story. I forgot to tell Shanika <laughs> that we were going to be on video. Um, because what you never want to do to someone is surprise them that there's a video I know, version. <laughs> I know. In this day and age and everybody's used to, you know, being on Zoom or a Skype call and sometimes it's just a call and sometimes it's video. I should have said video um, because our first season was not on video, but this season is. But listen, Shaniqua is such a baddie that she's <laughs> ready, okay? We were not going to catch her in those slippers and hair rollers and moo-moo. She was already dressed oh, from her okay. makeup on looking perfect. So. Oh, you're sweet. And you would have been fine had you shown up in all of those things as well. <laughs> so, True. just for the record. We welcome hair rollers. I got my cat floating around me. We welcome it all because that is the reality of life. So. That's right. Thank we you. are affirming in this space of however you show up. But listen, I love it. she's not going to let us catch her like that. So, um, Shaniqua E. Moore is a thought-provoking leader, visionary, and advocate in New York City with extensive professional and personal history in community activism advocacy. She is a candidate for the New York City um, Council in District 12 and the founder and CEO at the iRaise Girls and Boys International, which has transformed the lives of more than 10,000 of our city's most vulnerable youth. Shaniqua has championed causes in education, 
mental health, anti-racism, and civic engagement. Her visionary leadership is not only inspiring, but also critical for children and parents alike in our community and citywide. That is Ms. Shaniqua's official bio. I will say that I met her um, through her organization, actually, iRaise, um, last year when I decided to start a nonprofit to help parents and families get through this pandemic when they, you know, we had lost all connection really to our curricular activities and many of our friends. Um, I wanted to develop an online community where we could get to know people really all around the world and take fun classes together. And Shaniqua reached out to me and said, hey, how can our organizations partner together? And since then, she's decided to run for city council, which I think well, is who? great. Badass <laughs> move. I love that. Uh, I love when a woman is confident and says, "You know what? Let me stick my toe in into this into this space right here." And so, so glad to have you on, Shaniqua. Thank you so much, Ray. I appreciate that. And it's so nice to meet you, Dr. Blanca. I listened to some previous shows and I was cracking up in my car before here. So I'm good. And now you can be a part of the laughter with us. So there you go. You can be in, in actual community with us. So before we get like, we're going to, we, obviously we're going to, you know, ask questions and have so much to dig into. We would love to know um, beyond the bio, what are your identity markers? What are the things that you think identify who, you, who make you, you? Yeah. So I think first and foremost, being a black woman, a woman of color is what identifies me. That's um, something that I, I believe in my journey of being a black woman have been learning how to sort of, and, and I heard a, a previous show where one of the, the women, I can't remember her name, she said something that was really profound, um, how to not reimagine yourself in every space. But that's been um, something that I've found as a black woman for me has been that constant when you're in different circles and spaces where you don't necessarily feel like you belong, how do you fit in those spaces? So that for me has been one of my identifying factors. Um, and then the other thing is being a single mother. So I'm a mother of a nine-year-old um, daughter, Genesis, who is nine going on 30 years old, trying to be my <laughs> boss. <laughs> She's too much. I have um, one but... of those too, so. <laughs> <laughs> she's and she's she's one but I feel like she's five kids in one um so yeah and but also being a, a single mother is also something that um I definitely believe identifies me um not just being black being a woman but adding on that 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 other layer of being a single black mother and then being an entrepreneur on top of that is just mm -hmm. all of those multiple dynamics is it's very um been something I've been trying to navigate through and 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 I'll get, I'll, I guess we can get in, get more into that a little later, but um, I think those are mainly right now what identifies me. And of course, being um, a, a Christian woman, I definitely have to put that in there. I'm also a very spiritual woman. Um, I'm a Christian and I am a believer and I definitely wear that hat with pride. Awesome. Me too, sis. Me too. Um, you know what? I want to jump right into the interview. I have so many questions for you. Um, but one, I was listening to a podcast yesterday about women in leadership, and the host was saying that women are often not um, don't just decide themselves to get into politics, but they're normally asked or coerced or convinced. And, and so I just wanted to hear your journey from about going from uh, a real community based 
programming like iRaise that is in schools and provides, you know, programming for kids, um, how you went from that to saying, actually, I'm going to run for office. Like, were you act? Were you coerced? Or was this your own idea? <laughs> wow. Yeah. So funny story. About eight years ago, my sister, who's like my twin sister, but she's a year younger than me, she tells me, I, I had a, she goes, and she's, you know, she's like a, one of those dreamers. She goes, Shaniqua, I had a dream. You was running for city council. And there was like all these people around you. I was like, that will never happen. I'll never run for office. That's something I would never see myself doing. I got upset at her for even saying that. <laughs> that was eight years ago. So I just, I just mm. wanted to start off by saying that. So Wow. Absolutely. I don't believe women are coerced into this. Um, I believe it's a calling. So I started out running my nonprofit uh, straight out of graduate school when I finished um, my graduate studies at Columbia University in social work. I uh, was working, I believe at the time for uh, as a ch uh, for Children's Aid Society as a senior social worker. And in that position, I was still realizing that what I was doing was not enough. And so growing up in the Bronx and just being a, a person that's seen violence and uh, have experienced so much in life, living in the Bronx, poverty and uh, fatherlessness and all that stuff, um, it was something that was very personal and dear to me, looking at my community and the state that it was in. Um, and so when I was walking through the neighborhoods and sort of just looking around, I'm like, we need programming here. Our kids are roaming the streets. They don't have a place to come to that really... Um, teaches them who they are that helps them to reach their full potential and mm. so that was really the reason why i started my organization and i think what really was that transition for me was when i realized that in the role that i was in as a ceo um, and serving so many communities of color throughout new york city um, predominantly in the bronx but in also areas of new york city i realized that we i needed to shift from that position because i had mastered where i was um, and then more importantly, I realized that the leadership we had wasn't the leadership that we needed, that there needed to be a shifting in leadership. Um, and it was interesting because when I had made that decision, the person that was in that role actually was ex expelled, was expunged from city council. So it was, mm. I was, I was contemplating it for a while. Yeah. And then it was like that moment, it, it, that opportunity opened. And it was like, go. It was like the green light. I couldn't stop. And I took the opportunity and I, you know, I went forward and I've been running since. That was in October. Of, so I know, Ray, you were like, wait, what? When did you start running? That was in October of 2020. So it's been a few months now. And so the transition okay. for me was really just knowing that this, it was time to step up to the plate in a different way. It was time to really bring my A game and everything that I have, my expertise and my, all that passion and to serve in my community and, and a greater level. And what do you, so what do you, I mean, for, for folks listening and folks who are not even like in the district, like what is it that you, what are your areas of expertise? What are your areas of focus? What, what is, I, we heard the part about the youth and the children, but what are the other areas as well? Yeah. So I am a licensed social worker by profession. Um, I use that, that, that profession in so many different ways. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I run an organization, but through that organization, I'm really able to um, utilize a lot, a lot of my skills. So I, I guess I can talk a little bit about the initiatives that I've done, and then I'll trans uh, then start talking about some of my focus for my community. Um, some of my main initiatives that I've championed are around um, building 
comprehensive programming for black and brown kids. And why I, I emphasize that is because a lot of times our programming that we see in our communities don't reflect the kids that they serve. Um, mm -hmm. These programming don't necessarily um, really meet the needs of our communities and our kids. And so through my organization, I have the opportunity to really provide and build from the ground comprehensive programming that really tailors to the needs of black and brown children and builds up their self-esteem, that helps their, their mental health, um, that builds them up education-wise, and that really also provides support to the entire family. Um, and we do that through a very race-centered lens, which is also mm. something that's really missing in nonprofit and, and, and really in most of our programming across um, our entire nation is that anti-racist lens is not really taken into consideration. So I use that a lot through my organization. And from that, we see a lot of outcomes with kids that are that were once in gangs that are coming out of gangs or kids that were um, in, you know, in prison that are coming out of prison into our programs um, or children that were, you know, um, on the streets that have made better dis life decisions that have graduated from college and they really have that really uh, transformed their lives through our organization. And so um, those are some of the programs that I've been able to do. I was one of the, uh, my organization was one of the leading organizations that was championing school social work services. So before this was like a huge thing in New York City, about eight years ago, we already had started building out this school social work program that really focuses on building partnerships with public schools and providing those core social work services during the school and the school building throughout the entire school year, Monday through Friday. And so we would work- It's like counselors, not cops, right? Like that- There whole... we go. There yeah. we go. Exactly. And so we would work, you know, directly in the school building um, in, in collaboration with all these different stakeholders, but mainly to make sure that the kids were being they felt safe and they, they had an adult to speak to. Because a lot of times our kids, you know, most of these programs are focused on after school. But we found that a lot of kids feel so unsafe in school. They feel mm. disconnected from their school. They feel disrespected by their teachers. And a lot of times we see that kids are dropping out at such young ages. So our program has really been transforming a lot of those issues. Um, we also recently, I recently built, uh, designed a research team last year during COVID and we launched two studies. One is um, understanding the impact of racial injustice on our children's well-being in New York City, and the other is understanding the psychological impact of COVID on young people in New York City. And we're sort of in the finding stage of these studies, but some of the uh, preliminary results that we found is that children are really depressed from racism. Kids mm. are yeah. experiencing microaggressions. and racial trauma is so real, um, and people do not focus on that um, in schools and just thinking about the manifestations of how that lives in our children's bodies. Um, so I will say, as someone who heard something harmful from her, and sorry, I know you were in the middle of it, but you no, just made please, me like, you, you just got me there, girl. Uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, I heard something, you know, that someone said, you know, we do a lot of racial literacy with our kids. And so my son this morning said to me, you know, why are they, they're, they're, they're focusing on the Lenape, um, uh, the Lenape mm. community in New York. And so he's like, why are they talking to kids about the things you talk about to adults? And mm. I was like, I'm talking to the kid, to the adults about this because no one talked about it to them when they were kids. 
And oh. so the and, the and I was like, and why are you listening to all my conversations? Like, those are my conversations. Like, why are you listening to that? They do. <laughs> right. Um, but just think the historical, the you know, the two the two pieces of of like nuggets whenever I do race workshop is like children see race as early as six months. They don't necessarily like connote like what's good and bad, but they see difference. Like that's what babies do, right? Like um, they, they can recognize smell, they can recognize mothers, right? They can recognize these things. And so the other thing is that the, the impact of historical and racialized trauma, even if you don't have language around it, which I think is the piece that like we don't, there are other ways that our, our children, our youth express it um, that we don't realize. And so to add, as you said, the layer of COVID to this is going to be, um, you know, I, I fear for the return to like school in its full capacity without the compassion and understanding that is needed to guide our, our children through this. Um, yeah. it is, you know, because there, there, that's another layer of trauma, right? Like yeah. the, the trauma, the, the trauma of, of the pandemic. So, so sorry, you were saying, uh, you know, <laughs> no, that's so profound. Like, um, and I like the way you brought those pieces together the COVID layer, and then also racial injustice. And then keep in mind, we have both of these things going on at the same time, right? Like there's always been racial injustice in this country. We know that we're black people, right? Black and brown. Um, but I feel like our nation was finally at a place to really address it with the with uh, George Floyd's um, death, uh, murder. Um, and so, you know, all of that and add COVID to that and how our kids have been really impacted has been, um, you know, it's been something that we really need to think about as a society um, and also as government officials. How do we really make sure our kids transition back to school safely? And excuse me. And how do we make sure um, our our educators are supported um, in their role and feel supported when our kids are transitioning? So those are some of the things I do want to work on in city council. Some other focuses on my community is housing, which I know I had listed um on that little worksheet that you gave me. Housing is, is is very convoluted in New York City, but specifically in my community, which is the Northeast Bronx, it's very interesting because we have about 14,000 homeowners, and then we have about 50,000 co-op owners, but then we have five NYCHA developments. Mm-hmm. And, and I spend a lot of my time organizing in NYCHA, a lot of my time. My organization, when, we, when I first started it, we started it in NYCHA. We've served all the NYCHA developments in my community. And so what you notice is this its this huge, this huge divide. And we have mainly uh, predominantly uh, African-Americans and Caribbeans in my community, but it's so divided. Mm-hmm. Um, what you notice is that those that are homeowners are, 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 are really, uh, they sort of aloof themselves from those that are in NYCHA. And so those that are in NYCHA are often forgotten. They're often looked down upon. Mm. They're often, you know, people often have these condescending thoughts of them. And if you look at the conditions of NYCHA development, it's so heartbreaking. Like I was Mm. just there last week, Saturday. And as I'm walking through the hallways, the smells and I have a video and it's just the, the conditions of the hallways, the houses and the repairs not being done. It looks like a whole nother, doesn't even look like a part of our community. And then when you look Shanique, at the other can side. Can I interrupt yeah. you real quick for yeah. our, for our listeners and viewers Nitra. who don't know <laughs> yet. What's what NYCHA? Yeah, what that is. Can you, can you break that down so they understand what, what we're talking about? Of course. And I apologize for uh, using the acronym. So it no. stands for New York City 
housing authority, and it's essentially public housing for low-income individuals. Um, and so, again, you know, it's a federally funded program. So I know a lot of the the issues dealing with this the, this public housing is sort of, you know, it's from the top. But at the same time, there's things that we can do on a city level to really try to advocate for um, individuals that live in low-income housing. And then affordable housing is another issue in my community. Um, there, When you look at the, the rent, it's insane. It's spiked oh, double. Listen, <laughs> listen ridiculous. I have never seen rent prices like in New York City. I mean, when people hear what we pay, they're like, oh my gosh, you must... You must live in like some <laughs> enormous mansion. In a box. I'm like, no, it's a three bedroom apartment. I know people are constantly trying to move me back, move me to the not back to the south. I never lived there, but like to the south. I'm like, you know what you can get for that? And I'm like, yeah, but this is home, so I'm good. But thank you for that. Aww. Thank you for that listing. But thank you for the listing. I don't know That's how so people like. I know what Sean and I. I know our jobs, obviously. I know what we make. And how hard we have to grind to to pay what it costs to live in New York City. I don't know how the average person who is a crossing guard or whatever oh it is, how are you expect? How do you live in New York? I don't know. It's insane. I like people really have to make decisions. Like, do I pay my rent or do I eat? And it's, it's, it's in, like housing is fundamentally human right. And we've made it a privilege in America, especially in New York city. And so, so many people are in, in really horrible situations where the, the average working class person can't afford to pay their rent. So a lot of, um, some of my work that I, I really want to work on in city council is finding a way to really reform housing so that everyone essentially has a place to live, a place that they can call home. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I will say that the piece around um, just thinking of the cycle of housing and in, in New York and not, you know, the the amount even um, that people I grew up in NYCHA. I grew up on public assistance. Um, my mom is still in the NYCHA building. She refuses to leave because she's been She's been there for 40. She's like, why am I leaving? That's it's her in, It's in her, but it's a gentrified where it's, it, I, I'm near where the Nets have now made their home, right? Like, I'm, mm. I, that's where my, my I grew up. But it was desolate. No one was interested in it. And across the street, they built affordable housing. Wow. Um, and I remember graduating from college and it was like a three family home that to my mother, she was like, go get it. Cause to her, you go to college and all of a sudden you have money. I was like, Girl, <laughs> I left college with more debt. Like I got to pay my college loan. She thought I had, and at that time, I think it was like 200,000. And if you know the area, th those are probably like, I don't know, I don't know, something point million. I don't know how much. That's a good percent. I wish. Yeah, yeah. I know, but like, at, at, what was, I was 21 leaving college. Like what, yeah. what money did I really have? Nothing, right? And so, um, and she didn't, right? Because it, it was like a hundred dollar paycheck for food, you know, like it was, anyway. So, but I say all of that to say, you know, the, so just hearing the cycle of when when I, when we talk about like systemic racism, like when we talk about systems, mm -hmm. like you have touched on school, you have touched on housing, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you have touched, I mean, you know, we started to touch a little bit on healthcare and you started, you know, social workers. I had, I, when I was a principal and I entered into my principal, I had two amazing queens as social workers who really like grounded us on their work. And like, we are not policing kids. We are not the deans. Like when kids That's are right. in trouble, you don't send them to us to fix them. You send them to us to like find out what the problem is yes, and that yes. we work in community. That's the role of social workers. They're not there. And so to Denise and itself, who taught me so much about like what it was to really reimagine this role that people have taken, taken mm. for granted and not used um, the way it was supposed to be. But that's how systemic it is, is that mm. pick any of these entry points. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, you know, just when you want to like, you know, chip away at it, it still is, like it's so deep. Um, mm-hmm. And so the fact that you're trying to tackle all of these is pretty amazing. Um, uh, you know, Pray for uh, me. I know I listen, but you, you don't do it in isolation and you do it in community. Right. So yes. I think that's the piece. Um, so thanks for, well, you know, my question is like, what, like Blanca said, you are tackling so many things and, and, and you have a lot of issues that are clearly dear to your heart. That's one of the reasons that I really support you. I'm not in the Bronx, so I can't vote for you. So <laughs> sorry about that. But, you know, I've shared your posts and everything because you are clearly in the community, have been in the community um, and and know the struggle, know the people, care deeply about the people. My question is for, for those listening and who may be do black and brown women belong in politics? And why did you decide that this is an arena in which you can make a difference? Because I'll be honest, for me, I'm like, oh, you know, systems are going to system. You know what I'm saying? Like, you, you might go in there with the best of intentions, but you're only one person. Like Blanca said, yes, you're bringing the community with you, but um, I don't generally think of politics as a place where you can make an actual difference like you can in the nonprofit world. So can you talk to to me and also to our audience about why you feel like black and brown women should be in politics and why you are hopeful that you can actually address some of these issues that matter to you? Yeah, that's um, yeah. And that. That is a a lot of what you said, Ray, was real. And I appreciate that because that's a lot of what many of us feel like. And that's what I felt like prior to get into politics. Um, But I think that, um, you know, the real reason is that there's not enough of us that that are there, that are in those spaces, that hold those spaces. Mm -hmm. Specifically in New York City, um, council, there's about, I think the number is now eight city council women that are... um, are of color out of 51. So we have 51 city council members in New York City. And that number just actually increased. That's why I was like trying to figure out what it was because we just had a few special elections in New York City. But we have about eight women. And in my council district, there has never been a woman in that seat. In Mm -hmm. fact, in my district, Mm -hmm. there are no woman representation, Mm -hmm. not one from our Congress to our assemblymen to our council, to our senator, they're all men. And I love my men, like I love my black men, but when we don't have that diversity, that means our issues are not being heard. What we need is not being advocated for properly. And so knowing that was really my conviction. Like 
there's not enough of us in that circ in that in those spaces. So mm -hmm. when legislation is being voted on on a local level, who where are we going to be to say no to that or yes to that if mm -hmm. we're not in those spaces? And so it was important to me to make sure I was at the table. And I listen, I'm the kind of person that will build my own table, bring my own chair. Like I don't need <laughs> no one to do it for me. And so um, but also, in addition to that, as city council, just to, like little education, um, their role is really to um, to to really make sure the community is resourced um, in terms of funding wise. So mm -hmm. every city council members is allotted a certain amount of money, which is called discretionary funding. And that discretionary funding, you essentially you should be using it according to the needs of that district. So it should be spread across for senior care. Um, child care, education, land use, environmental justice. You really should be understanding what are the needs of that district. And then you're able to not just uh, uh, allocate those funding, those funds, but also work in partnership with community-based organizations, church-based institutions and schools and the police to make sure that community is properly um, resourced and has what it needs to be able to thrive. Um, also in city council, a lot of the role is really to make sure when there are developers that are uh, are are building in that community that you have a say so and you're informing the community and that you're making sure those decisions are made in the lens of environmental justice and also racial justice. We don't mm -hmm. think about when we're building in communities how often black and brown people are displaced. The city mm -hmm. council member could really help to advocate against that and to make sure the community is properly informed, which a lot of times they aren't. They're not civically engaged. They're not, there's not transparency that's happening. Mm. And a lot of times, unfortunately, I have to say this, sometimes our own people sell out our people. Yeah. And so yeah. yeah. And that's something wow. I'm so convicted. I, I never, I'm like, take me away, take me out that position before I would ever even have that thought. Mm. And I so, can hear the conviction in your voice, right, Blanca? Like, it is. Yeah, you're like, I hate to say it, but let's actually say it. I mean, it is. It's one of those things where it's like when we will, you know, it's the, the crabs in the barrel when we were, when I young, when we were younger, I feel like people used to use that analogy more. I don't know if people use it anymore, but, um, but it's one thing to gain some power and then to not, that's the community and individualism, I think, again, right? It's like that I use that power for my own individual gain and not my communal, my communal growth. And so you, I hear it. I hear you know it. What happens when women, when you give resources to women, right? Like study after study, program after program has shown that when you really want to change and affect a community, you have to lift up the women in that, in that community. And so I am all about you running. You really educated me this morning and, and hopefully, yeah. you know, our listeners as well. I did not fully understand, you know, the role of city council. And so hearing it that way and also the lack of diversity. Are you serious right now? Eight women it's out sad. of 50 something seats. So no wonder we don't see a lot of the movement that we would hope to see on these issues because we ain't got women in there. We all know that women, uh, we, we make change and we speak truth to power. Um, can you talk a little bit about what, what you think women need in order, it's, uh, particularly women of color, in order to be able to serve powerfully, whether it's in politics or, or education or business or finance or whatever, what are organizations and, and corporations 
um, and municipalities not doing right now to, to make way for women of color and particularly those of us who are mothers to be able to step it up to the plate as you have. Yeah, I think that it's, um, it really boils down to two things. It's access and it's mentorship. Um, I think that women of color, black women are traditionally um, not given the opportunity. There are um, often not, uh, people don't normally take chances and I, I'm like struggling to say that word because I don't want to say take chances because I think more women of color are more than equipped and more than skilled to handle that, but they're not often seen as that. I think that our perception of who women of color are needs to change. So it needs to be like an internal um, sort of shifting or a cultural shift too. Like the way we see women of color, the way we um, treat women of color has to change. I, I've been on this really interesting mission where um, we know that, and I always say this, that women of color are often ignored and not seen. They're often invisible, which is another issue. And so a lot of times when I'm out and I'm sure most women of color that are listening to this probably have experienced this one time where you're skipped on a line or someone jumps in front of you. <laughs> you're like, I was standing there, right? <laughs> so I've been using that as an opportunity really to educate people when they do that. Men, white men, whoever, I, I would, and not in a disrespectful way, but to say, sir, and then to really educate them. And that is one of the things that we need to start doing. We need to start educating people on the fact that women of color are invisible, that they are often ignored, and that, yes, they have the skills, they're more than equipped, they work twice as hard, but they're not giving access and opportunity to be able to be in those leadership roles. So I think mm -hmm. that we need to really change the way we see women of color. We need to change the way we view them, and we need to trust that they can handle it that they do get the job done and give them opportunity to be able to lead in those roles. And then the other thing is we need to make sure we have access. So that's another thing. Access is huge, access and equity. You know, that is huge when we're talking about women of color being in leadership positions. If there is no access to get there, so I'll just use my own personal story, running for city council has been hard. It's been so difficult. I thought black women were just going to jump on the bandwagon and be like, yeah, supporter. No, <laughs> it's not been my journey. And so mm. I use this as, a, you know, spaces to be vocal about it, not to shame my black women because I love my black woman, but mm -hmm. really to educate each other that sometimes we're implicit in our own oppression and we don't mm, absolutely so <laughs> really educating black women to say, and, and it doesn't come all the time from a, a intentional place. Sometimes it's just a part of that, that cycle of like marginalization, right? And so mm. also empowering other black women, let's come together, like the space you're holding um, Blanca and Ray, this is amazing. We need more of these spaces because these spaces is what helps to bring access and opportunity to black women like me. And so I think that's another thing. We need to support each other more and be able to say, okay, I have this, let me help you out. Let me, I can, uh, you know, introduce you to this person over here. And that's how we get in those spaces. But a lot of times what happens is the, the few black women that are there, it's like, they don't want to mentor you. They will not reach their hand out. I'm um, speaking specifically in the field of politics. They won't reach mm -hmm. their hand out to say, there's a young black woman that's trying to come up. Let me have a coffee, a coffee and conversation with her. Let me give her some nuggets. You know, and so that's really what's missing. So we need to make sure we reform the way we think of black women, but it, but in turn, we need to reform the way we think of each other. 
And I think, right. Yeah. Just, uh, you know, when you keep, you know, I think this is when we get to the letter from a listener slash viewer, um, just thinking about the internalization of messages to one, you know, how we don't, sometimes we block our own blessings because we don't necessarily think that we're deserving or they haven't been anyone like whatever it is, you know, that the, the internal dialogue that I always say we, we have with ourselves. And then two, just when you enter into those spaces, how the responsibility is to bring people with you. I always think about when I used to, uh, I've gone through church exploration, grew up Catholic, but I've gone through different church exploration. And then, you know, I would, when one of, one of my church exploration was like, you know, when you leave here, bring back three people. Right. Yeah. And so just thinking about whatever role it is, how do you bring along other people with you? Mm. And so that it's not, it's not just you um, alone. And it's not like, you know, um, whatever the, the and, and it really is whatever the role is, right? Like it, it is about exposure. It's not necessarily just about power, right? Like who moves up, but it is about some, some exposure to whatever blessing you're receiving in that moment. And so, mm-hmm. so yeah, so it just makes me, you know, think about that. And like communal gatherings and sisterhood is not anything new. So how do you... Yes. How do you ensure that you're doing it deliberately? I think is the the bigger piece. But thank I love that analogy, Blanca. The 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 church analogy. Uh oh, yeah. I know. I, I knew. I knew I was going to hit y'all too. Y'all know I don't talk about church up in here, but I do. I did go to church. I grew up church in the church, but you know, love you know, it. My kids are like, wait, because people say that all the time. Like, okay, when you come back here, bring three people. And what does that look like? Not in the church context, but in what, wherever we are. Right. And so if I move up, if I move over, if I move out, who am I bringing with me? Who am I bringing behind me to either fill the role that I just left or to prepare them for the role that is ahead of me or to, to work alongside me in this new role? Um, that I'm in. So I like that, Blanca. I'm, I'm going to be using that. See, look at, look at that. Look at that. I'm going to try it. Christianity is not my identity marker, y'all. And y'all just dropped something. I'm just saying from the church. I'm just saying. Listen, girl, we're going to get you saved up in here. No, Come on now. Listen, I don't know my saviorhood already. I know. I know, girl. Listen. I Y'all don't know about my personal conversations with my God. Come on, now. come on, Blanca. God knows your heart, sis. God knows your heart. God it's also awesome. knows my pain and my struggle. Listen, if we had another session for that, social worker, like we could talk about that because you yes. were trained. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been it's been great, you know, talking with you about these things and um, you know educating our our listeners and our viewers on I mean you really you've given me a lot to think about about um politics girl I have no I have zero experience in running for yeah. anything but I ran for dorm president oh. at Melbourne College my freshman <laughs> year okay and I can talk about this now because the girl who beat me spoiler alert I did not win um <laughs> the girl who beat me we are really really good friends now shout out to Dr. Candice I love that. Um, yes, but <laughs> that taught me early on that you know what, running for things is is really not for me, girl. I'll never forget. I walked up <laughs> to the third floor and I was gonna like put my flyers up 
and I saw that somebody had taken one of my flyers and crumpled it up and threw it on the ground. And girl, that hurt my heart so bad. (laughs) I did not hang another flyer. I was like, oh, oh, no, never. I know. Listen, my heart's not. I I mean, I guess your dorm presidency, your dorm, whatever it was, you like politics up in there. Look, that's politics too. I do. Listen, listen. I mean, we did talk a lot about politics, but I will say that a perspective that hasn't often been shared here, and I don't know, Ray, we want to, you know, we haven't, we've we've talked about parenting, we've talked about all these things. We haven't had folks just talk about navigating the space as a single mom. A single working mom. And so I don't know if there's anything, you know, just a way, you know, like not necessarily around politics, but you're also raising, I think you said a nine-year-old daughter going on 35 or 38 <laughs> or 40, <laughs> like whatever she's going on, she thinks he runs you. Come um, on. <laughs> like you're like a crumbled paper and pales in comparison to raising my nine-year-old. Um, but I don't know if there's anything just, you know, um, I think about the strength that I was raised by my, my, basically my mom raised us, you know, it's all a complicated story, but, um, she raised us most of her life, you know, of our, of my life, you know, um, and just what is it that, um, how do you, how do you add more? <laughs> how have you continued to add more <laughs> to your plate, um, as a woman who is navigating both home and work and work looks like different pieces for you. It has different, different pieces. So how has that been for you? And, you know, are there any supports that you have relied on, um, to help you through it? Yeah. So no, that's a great question. I appreciate it. So I was also raised by a very strong black woman. Shout out to my mom, Priscilla Prince and who I absolutely adore. Um, She raised six of us. I don't know how she did it Mm. by herself. And she was also a working mom. So I think like seeing that and the principles that she taught me, like working hard and balancing and prioritizing. And then also she was the one that introduced me to Christianity. So that was also, um, you know, at a very young age, something that I've learned and I've grown up in a Christian household. So I think like all of those things, those principles is something that stood with me. That's, that's helped me. Um, but I obviously didn't imagine myself to be a single um, mom. That was not, especially for those that are Christians, we, you know, sometimes slip up, but that's never in the plan. So I think for me, it's been hard. Like I've been trying to find that uh, throughout my parenting, and it's only been nine and a half years, but I've been trying to find like that balance. And I think I've finally found it. My daughter is a mini me. She looks just like me. She acts just like me. And so I kept saying, I need a good assistant and I have assistants, but I needed someone that was like with me all the time. So guess Mm. what? I made my daughter my assistant. (laughs) She gets paid and she works about 10 to 15 hours a week. And she gets a paycheck every week um, and she works for it. And when I tell you she moves faster than me, y'all, like I can't even. What kind of job she got? What is she assisting you? (laughs) That is amazing. She sends emails for me. She types very well. She does my to-do list. She does my schedule. She checks my schedule. She sets up meetings for me. She's really, she makes phone calls if it's like family members for me. Um, and then, you know, then sometimes I like try to take advantage of it. I'm like, oh, you got to give me a massage as a part of your job. <laughs> like, no, Wait, that, was not. Not in my that was not in my contract. Okay. Yeah. 
So I think oh this involving your, your children and your work is something important and hire your own kids, teach them responsibility, teach them accountability, teach them those skills that they need to be in a workforce. And just seeing that she's already um, writing the vision to open up her own business, which is a daycare. Oh, wow. She loves babies. So she started writing out her business plan already on um, opening her daycare, which is called Genesis Daycare, by the way. Oh. So I think that's my, my, I found it. That's just involving her and everything that I do. We're about to see her run for city council. Right? No, that's so great. I mean, listen, we all are like, you know, talking about giving our kids chores and allowance and and different things like that, mostly centered around teaching them skills around the house. But I love this idea of teaching them like workplace skills. Um, My daughter, my oldest is 21. And, you know, being the oldest of five kids, she's well equipped now to, to help out with children. So she's worked her way through college, you know, babysitting here and there, packing. She's an expert (laughs) a million times. And so like these that that we use um, and that we rely on, you know, we can be thinking about how to pass those on. My daughter, my 19-year-old writes for the North Star. Wow. So like if we can be in a position to employ our children um, and to teach them early on, how to be, you know, working people. Cause like the Bible says, a man don't work, a man don't, don't eat. eat. <laughs> for a woman too. Listen, listen, <laughs> my kids want to work, but they got these business ideas every five seconds. I want to run this business. All right, we're great. <laughs> well, who money, where's your startup fund? Cause it's not going to be me. <laughs> you got to give me a business proposal and they can't be drawings up in here. I need words <laughs> to practice that writing. So I hear you. No. That's right. I don't want my daughter to listen to this because she's like, see, I'm, she's been trying to get me to hire her to do her work. Oh, and oh, but but she's also been like, it also is a substitute for my current work, and so therefore, I'm like, no, 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 you go to school plus. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Do your homework. Go to school. Right. That's right. You can't clock in until all yeah. that's done. Yeah. So. Well, it's been so great talking with you, Shaniqua. Uh, we are going to um, go to our next segment, one of our favorites, one of my favorites, I will say. I love, I Uh-oh. love, yeah, yeah. So we'll, we'll, we'll have that coming up next. Wow story. What is your wow story? What is my wow story? What is your wow story? So Shaniqua, gosh, girl, you've been everywhere. You've done, you've done so many different things. I'm sure you have wild stories. Like you already talked about white men cutting in front of you in line, which <laughs> I have not had that experience. She did say men in general, too. Not just white men. I'm just, I just want to call it. We've been having a WNBA versus NBA conversation in our house. I just I've been on a kick right now. But anywho. Where they do that at? But um, <laughs> share with us your your wild story that you brought for our listeners. So mine is actually um, it's a it's not a funny story. It's actually an interesting story. But um, so in my position as a CEO, I um, have the privilege of hiring some people. Uh, a few years ago, I think it was maybe 2017 or 2018. I was at some community um, event 
and uh, it was a mandatory event for all my staff to be at. And so it was sort of the first time that I met one of the staff persons that um, was hired, but I never got to meet him face to face. And so when we were at the community event, you know, we uh, at the end of it, we were sitting down and talking. And this is a Latino guy. And he says to me, Miss um, Moore, you know, the people, the staff don't respect you. Um, and then he proceeded to talk, you know, they don't respect you because you're a black woman and they don't think yet you know what you're doing. And oh. I just remember that like so clear and he's like, and they've been talking about you. And then I'm like, so mm -hmm. you're bringing the, the information. So I'm sure you're a part of the conversation. But 100 100%. 100%. And so I just remember that feeling, you know, that you get in the pit of your stomach and you're like, yeah. really? And at yeah. that time, it was interesting because I had a lot of um, males in my organization. That was a time to really look at who we were hiring to and to, you know, start rehiring and now to, you know, bring in some more a woman into the organization, but that was just a story I wanted to share because that was just a reminder that doesn't matter what position you're in, you're always going to be confronted with that as a black woman. And so being a CEO, that's something I am constantly dealing with. And, um, and that was one of the, one of the things that I remember that was like right in my face. It was like, did he just say that? <laughs> Did he and think then, he was like helping you? I know, that's what I was gonna say. And then caught himself thinking. Yeah, like he was helping, right? It was like, oh, you know, let me tell you what's going on in the organization. They don't like you. You don't know what you're doing because you're a black woman. I'm like, what? And what he, what did he want? Which part of those identities did he want you to change? Like, which part? Right. right. What, what is my improvement plan <laughs> on my blackness or my womanhood? Like, which part am I supposed to? What was the feedback here? Like, exactly. where's the action? I mean, it does make me think of the kind of feedback that people give that's clouded in like identity, right? Mm. So, like, oh, your tone, you're this, you're that, but it does, you know. I'm like, what did he, what was he looking for? Right. What are they I looking for? I wonder how he narrowed it down to the fact that, because there are a number of reasons why staff members could be wilding or whatever like that. I wonder how he narrowed it down to the fact that it was because you were Black and because you were a woman. Like, is this something that people were saying? Is this his own perception? That's interesting. I don't even know. But the funny thing is he did ask for a raise after that conversation. <laughs> Because I he was trying oh, to help you. This is not <laughs> happening. <laughs> I gave you something, you give me something. Right. He's right. Like, By the way, I want you know, I'm looking for a raise. I want like a ten thousand dollar raise. I'm like, this is not happening. But I don't know how he perceived it like that. Like if there were conversations that he was having with the men and maybe it came up in conversation. I'm not quite sure, but I remember him saying that. That was just like, and after that conversation, I had to be like. I had to think and process. It hit me like right there in my stomach. I was like, wait a minute, it's happening right. here. So. Right, because it's one thing if someone says, you know, well, here's this leadership area that I think perhaps might be a blind spot for you, you know, that you might want to work on based on conversations with the staff. Like, first of all, it always makes me uneasy if somebody says, well, I just want you to know what people are saying. Cause I'm like, right. how do you know? And why do they feel comfortable saying it in your presence? Right. Mm -hmm. first of all, like, cause you, you, you are clearly maybe a part of these conversations, but like, um, if it if it is based on a leadership area that you can work on and perhaps improve and it's like constructive feedback, that's one thing. If it's like, oh, it's because you're a black woman, like Blanca said, what part of that are you supposed to change? <laughs> you know? 
right there, there is no part of that um that you can change and i think that as black women in leadership so much excuse my language shit gets kicked our way and thrown mm-hmm. our way we have to decide what part of that are we going to keep or mm. bond to uh, and what part of that you know doesn't belong to us and do we have to like you know let go you know because it's and, not our oh yeah and what and what part of it do you put on people i think part of it is also well what was the whatever whatever the perception was about what it means to be a black woman leader for you, right? I had a similar, I had a version of when I took over the school, a comment that was made to me anonymously on a feedback forum about the school softening under my leadership. And I was like, mm. what, what part of that was, you know, what part of that is not about me? Mm-hmm. Like if there's actual things, like wow. tell me the actions, right? Tell me the actions and the impact, right? What part of that is about you and the perceptions that you have mm-hmm. developed? What part of that is about the, the the ideas you have been socialized? What part of that is your work, right? And so, sure, I can grow as a leader. If there are things that you think are making the school unsafe, then that's the right. language, right? You're like, the school feels unsafe because, mm-hmm. but the school is softening, right? Or, you know, whatever language is being used. Those are different things, right? Um, and so I do think that there is a dual that oftentimes, or I won't say oftentimes, that sometimes we make it about us and it's really like, well, how do I how reverse that mirror to make it about what wow. you have been socialized to believe, right? Yeah. Um, and how much of that is, you know, like when you're running an organization, how much of that is a public, when I think about racial justice work or equity mm-hmm. work, the equity work is about un- unpacking your own learning and mm-hmm. really thinking about what you have been socialized to believe. Uh, because that impacts those interactions, right? As much as they impact the policies you're making, but they really impact those day-to-day interactions. Um, and so that's what that's what it makes me think of when when I heard that. I was like, oh no, what's your work, boo? <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. All right, um, wow, wow. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, he didn't get a raise and he was actually terminated right after that because he wasn't a good, em- just in terms of his work, um, work ethics it wasn't good period so um they, that was a he red flag he just wasn't working the way you needed him to work maybe you know <laughs> working his mouth okay how he about that he was working ears he was working okay. how about that <laughs> like, that's exactly what he was doing Blanca he was the person that always that was it <laughs> he, was, he was doing some other work he was like retweet <laughs> so we're gonna but I think listen I actually do think that this is similar to the letter from the listener um do we want to we can we, we're gonna move to that next and then just uh we're gonna come back and then listen to the letter from the listener and then I think there, there are actually some similar patterns that we're seeing here so we'll be back for that we got a letter from a Today's um, Dear Woke at Work letter. Look at us. I mean, we're like a Dear Abby column. We, we're like all the things. <laughs> we handing out affirmations and uh, interviews, uplifting, all that kind of stuff. But um, our Dear Woke at Work comes from, and I just have your Instagram handle. handle. It's from Be More 
Um, and it says, need advice about moving up in the field of education. In the small school, school district I work in, there seems to be an unspoken next in line for the job undercurrent that prevents me from even applying for certain jobs due to not wanting to feel disappointed when I knew I wasn't going to get it. Or also the fear of why are you even applying for that job? When you know it's for so-and-so, how can I overcome this feeling? Okay, Be More is wanting some advice. She's wanting to move up, but feels like, you know, hey, I'm not supposed to apply for that, for that job. It's not for me. It's probably for somebody else. Like, there's an unspoken rule. What do we have to say to Be More? Y'all know, I said this before when I, when I was reading through it, uh, be more just where that name come from because you clearly think you know you be more i mean how you name be, be more you, you be more um what do you mean by that blanca yeah i i you know i think you know i think this is similar to the conversations we uh, so some of the the threads that we had you you started this actually this whole thing off by talking about in politics, someone taps you into positions like that whole pattern of people tapping us into positions. I think about some of the the work that I've done has always been like, hey, you might be great for this. Hey, mm-hmm. you might be great for this. You're next. Yeah. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And so like that's a that's one way of, of waiting to be tapped and also just realizing your power is really the next the next next thing. Right. And so if I realize that I am more, I realize that um I am I am worthy of trying things out, then or that I can be the dorm, you know, potentially the dorm, <laughs> whatever it was. Dorm president. Dorm president. Whatever it is, right? Like you go for it, you try it. Um, as someone, I don't, I will say personally, I am not a big competition person. I don't like to fail. So I'm not the person to, I'm not going to try to, to, to compete in a swimming contest if I know I don't know how to swim, right? So first I'm going to practice in silence and nobody's going to know. And then all of a sudden people be like, oh, snap, you know how to swim? Yes, mm-hmm. I, you know, I'll try to make it seem effortless, effortless. Um, so I, I can understand like there's some reluctance and reticence if that's your personality, if that's not your, um, if that's not in you. But I do think that um, there is this in there is some type of unpacking and like this is where the mirror turns to us and it's just like, well, what about me has told me that I can't apply for certain things that I am not worthy of applying mm-hmm. for certain things. Mm-hmm. And so it is one thing to say I'm worthy and I'm just not applying. And it is another thing to say, mm, I don't think I'm going to get that. I don't think I'm going to get that. I don't think I'm going to get that. Right. And so I think a lot about that and like the internalized messages we receive over time of not feeling like we are just deserving of some of these. So that's just, um, so when I say be more, be more, um, it really is like, you know, you're deserving of more. So, you know, you live, live out your, live out your, your handle, right. Live out the Instagram handle and, and continue and try to apply it. Right. And I don't know the context of where you are. You could be like, this is a real political district where you have to know someone to get somewhere. So I'm like, well, it might be time to move to a different place, right? Um, right. If that's, if that's the situation, Shaniqua, I think about you and, and you not waiting to be tapped. You know what I'm saying? And like Blanca said, that is how politics works a lot of times, right? Oh, it's yeah. like, oh, you're going to be my successor mm-hmm. or this seat is going to be yours. You know, like I'm dubbing you and you didn't wait for that, right? That's right. So in very, very similar, and thanks for bringing that up, Ray. So and I'll just share my story with you, Be More. Um, so when I decided to run and I talked about like the opportunity open, 
but let me be real and say that some was someone was already tapped on the shoulder and told that they were going to get that position. And mm -hmm. so I didn't let that stop me. I didn't say, well, this guy is, you know, backed by the most powerful person of New York state, which he is. Mm -hmm. Um, or, you know, people have told me straight up, some people don't do it. Don't run. You don't got what it takes. You can't raise the money. And I didn't, I had to really look myself in the mirror and I had to be confident in who I was, um, and my skills and my passion and all that I bring to the table. And I think that as black women, we don't give ourselves enough credit. We are so hard on our own self. We beat ourselves down. Nobody has to beat us down. Like we do it ourselves. And so it, you know, don't do that to yourself. Don't beat mm. yourself down. Know that you deserve to be in that position. The fact that you've been thinking about it, you've been contemplating it, you probably even did some research and went on a computer, that probably means it's your passion. And so I would just take that a step level. Um, Blanca talked about doing some research, I, um, you know, some training. I would definitely do that. If you can get some training in under your belt, if you already have that, great. If you can speak to someone that's in that field or in that position that can give you some advice or some mentorship, do that, you know, have some coffee with someone and get advice. But really, it starts with looking at yourself. Be more. And that is know that you are deserving of that. And don't talk yourself out of it. And yeah. I remember that being something that my cross country coach taught me when I was in college. Yes, I ran, I ran cross country and I was a cheerleader <laughs> back in the day. But when he, when he said to me, he wrote everyone little notes. And I remember the note he gave me. And it was, um, don't be defeated before you start the race. And that's something mm -hmm. that always mm -hmm. stuck with me. It was like, you defeated yourself before you even applied to that job. You told yeah. yourself you're not going to get it because they say, or he say, she say, but what do you say? Right. Yeah. So know that you can, you can, you're, con you're, you're worthy of that position. You're deserving of it and just go for it. Like go for it. That, that's my advice. I was telling you all about the podcast that I was listening to yesterday. I I love podcasts. It is what I do. I don't watch TV, you know, all that kind of stuff. When I have time, I'm in the kitchen or whatever. Um, I'm in the car. I'm listening to a podcast. And the one I was listening to yesterday, someone was interviewing a woman who is the mayor of her city. And they asked her, you know, what would you say to to your younger self and she said mm -hmm. I would tell my younger self fresh out of college you know starting things to take more risks yeah and put my I wish that I had put myself out there and and taken more risks and this woman was you know further down the line probably in her 60s or so which I mean gosh I talk about further down the line I'm getting older girl somebody <laughs> heard to me is middle age for the first time okay I was like oh no <laughs> That's how I feel when people talk about ma'am. I'm like, I know that's respect, but right? like, can I be called honey or yes. something like something young? Right? Boo. Uh, boo, right? She was like middle age. I'm doing a study on middle age women. I was like, oh, you talking to me? But neither here <laughs> there. But that's what she was saying that she wished that she would tell her younger self, like, take more risk. And I felt that. I really felt that because I, I I played it safe for so much of of my life and and only stayed in the lane in which I knew I could be successful and it's only been in these last four five years or so that I would say that I've actually taken risks in my career and pushed myself and and you know taken the risk of failing right because there's no guarantee 
that that we're going to be successful. But I don't want to get to the end of my life and wish that I had, you know, tried um, tried some things that scared me, um, that challenged me. So that that would be my advice to you, Be More. It doesn't matter who's tapped in. Okay, when God says yes, nobody can say no. Come on. Right, how about that? <laughs> Uh-oh. That's right. I didn't bring that one to the space. My bad. <laughs> My bad. Super, a super churchy episode. But listen, what is for you is for you, but you're not going to know if you don't put yourself out there and go for it. Okay. That's our advice. Let us know how it goes. Um, we'd, we'd love to, to hear from you again. Yes. Give us an update, um, Be More. Give okay, us an so update. Now, this our last part, Shanika. Yeah, yeah okay. this is you can make it very religious if you like, but this is our <laughs> affirmation. This is the blessings you want to leave for others as oh. we um as we end the podcast and I just as that. people, you know, come to the end of the podcast. Just something for our listeners and viewers to take away with them. Affirmation. Affirmation. So Shaniqua, we have we are coming to our end, and you know, at the end of each segment, we um we love to have um, our guests leave some parting words, some parting thoughts for our listeners as they wrap up this episode of Woke at Work. So, would love to hear some. Whatever's speaking to you, whatever's, you know, whatever part is coming to you to leave for our listeners today uh, or whatever day they listen into it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been such a pleasure being here with you, ladies. You're um, both super phenomenal and fabulous. So I just wanted to say that um, and also wanted to encourage both of you to continue pushing forward and to continue um, provoking change on this level and creating these amazing spaces for um, women like me and also for our listeners. Um, I think this is a definitely an area that we need more of and um, it's a safe space. I can feel that. So I just wanted to encourage you, Ray and Blanca, to continue being fabulous and continue pushing. And then to the listeners, I would love to leave a scripture and that is, um, eye has not seen, ears have not heard, neither has it entered into the hearts of man the things that God has prepared that love them. So I just want you to know that this is this is your season. I, this is our season, Black woman, to rise up. Like, don't doubt yourself. Um, don't second guess yourself. Know that you belong in whatever space that you're in or whatever space you're, you're, uh, you aspire to be in. So continue to move forward. Continue to push. Let's continue to empower one another in this season because we can't do it on our own. We have to do it together. So my my word of affirmation is really um, know that this is your season. Um, your season to move forward. Your season to be in that role and that that dream that you've been you know thinking about for years. This is your season for that. So I just wanted to leave that, and you can follow me. Um, at Shaniqua E. Moore on all of my social media, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thank you so much, Ray. Thank you, Blanca. I appreciate this. Thank you, Shaniqua. When is is the election? When can people people vote for those who are listening, who are in District 12? 
Yep. So the election is June 22nd. That is our New York City primary election. So even if you don't live in the Bronx and District 12, do vote. Um, that's one of the things that we don't see a lot of civic engagement. But make sure you get out to vote because your voice matters. Your voice and your vote matters as much as you don't think it does. It does. Um, and so in this election is going to be the largest election in New York City, our mayor, our borough presidents, all of our city mm -hmm. council members, mm -hmm. and our controller is changing. The entire leadership of New York City is changing. So make sure you get in on that and make sure you get educated about ranked choice voting, which is a new form of voting that has been um, enacted in New York City and will be, when you get to the polls, make sure you know how to vote. It's going to be no longer just voting this way. You're going to be voting that way now. So you're going to be voting, you're going to be ranking your um, your candidates and order who's your number one, your number two, and so forth. Mm. So make sure you're educated about ranked choice voting and make sure you get out to vote June 22nd, even if you're not in the Bronx, whatever district in New York City you're in, this is our primary election. So get out to vote. Thank awesome. You so Thank much, you Anika. so much, Anika. Wow. We learned so much. Um, good luck to you. Yeah. And no matter the outcome, um, you will be continuing to pursue your passion and your work in, in this community. But um, good luck. Good luck Thank on your you. election. Thank All you, right. Anika. Let us make time for reflections. 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 Hey! Wow, so, we had a politician up in here. That was our first. <laughs> that was our first, you know, political kind of. Uh, um, yes, and you know, we had to turn down Kamala. You know, <laughs> um, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, no. But you know, I prefer it on this like local level. You know, what that's I'm what saying? I was gonna say. Um, it is. It I, is I huge. It, yeah. I think, I think, you yeah. know, that is a, I know so many people who have actually more people than not that I've been in a closer circle that have gone on a more local level because it, it, it you see the direct impact, you feel it on that level, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, um, right in the communities, in the communities, they're like straight up walking around in the communities. Right. And so, right, right, um, right. and so it is like the smaller, how do you impact the, the, the more local, um, sphere of influence right how do you impact that smaller area yeah so. yeah um well one thing i'm really taking away from this conversation is is this idea of black women black and brown women belonging in every space you know mm -hmm. that impacts our lives and i i was really shocked that there are so few women of color in mm -hmm. local politics in in new york city um i would not have guessed that and you know shout out to all the black and brown men holding space but it's not the same as having mm -hmm. a a black or brown woman um who can be in those spaces advocating nobody advocates like a woman and nobody advocates like a mother okay so so yeah. that matters so i'll just be thinking about you know where else we need to show up and then also how we as a community of black and brown women can be more supportive of yeah. those who do answer the call to step up to the plate to advocate in that way yeah i think and, and just like you know from from what shanique was shared to what the the writer you know the letter from listener from listeners um perspective just thinking about 
what is it that um, is blocking us from pursuing that whatever, right? Like whatever it is. And so, um, so I think about, you know, how we talk ourselves out of our blessings beforehand, um, before we even mm-hmm. try it. And so um, that to me just seemed to be a pattern and a theme today, whether, you know, whether it is a bit of imposter syndrome, whether it is about imposter system, right? The system has us thinking that because we don't see ourselves that we aren't supposed to be there. Um, or would it, whether it is, uh, you know, like even people within our own communities, unfortunately, discouraging us, you know, like what is our work yeah. of encouraging one another? So I am thinking a lot about just what does it mean um, to take that risk, to try something, and also what does it mean to 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 hold one another in that space uh, within our own communities? So yeah, so that's that's just been on my mind um, a lot as she was talking today, as yeah. Janiko was talking, so. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, listen, girl, another one down. Another one down, yo. Yes, so uh, if you're in New York, go out to vote. If this is out before June 22nd, you know, get out local politics vote. Um, they, all of this still matters, right? Um, in, 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 in closer ways than we, we actually know, um, sometimes. That's right. So. That's right. All right. Well, we'll see y'all for the next one. Yes, we will. Mm-hmm.